Good morning. Welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. This is Dan uh, back in the DTM studio here in the wood shop uh, recording our podcast on a Saturday morning. Um, really having a lot of fun doing this and and uh, the numbers are the number of listeners are, are is continues to grow. So I uh, appreciate you guys out there listening to it. Hope it spreads. Uh, if we can help people out there, that's what, what our main purpose is here and uh, put down some um, Really what I think of is just homegrown, down-home recovery juice talk uh, rather than uh, spiced-up stuff. And you can certainly hear that with the guests that we have in, I believe. Uh, we're just regular guys. Uh, this morning we got a treat for you. We have uh, Nick in the studio. He's come in. Uh, we've been trying to arrange it for some time. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. We've been trying to get him in here. He's a regular on the – I think you've been a part of every single roundtable one we've done. And uh, probably i yeah. think so yeah uh from the beginning ones to deer camp to everything mm-hmm. so you've been a, the, the listeners out there should know your voice by now if they don't know you personally already so that is super cool um i guess we will just get started i don't see much since i had a we will get around to some more things in conversation i'm sure so there's no real reason to sit here and promote anything at the moment uh we'll mentioned before and after spiritualunderground.org it was down yesterday for a little bit which was weird and it always kind of panics me out i don't know and it's not that damn important you know but last night it was down and i was like scratching like and, and i looked at it this morning is back up again um i don't know what was going on but spiritualunderground.org you can see pictures you can see show notes we're gonna i'm gonna hopefully continue to put some more content on there uh probably uh add for a new book that's out coming out in just a few days it'll be up on there too soon so uh usually just to break the ice nick i usually start out with somebody's sobriety date and sure. then uh you've been around the block a time or three so you know where you can take this story where you want to take it sounds good yeah my sobriety date is december 13th of 2013 that was uh friday the 13th of december so yeah pretty cool of, a lot of 13s in there yeah a lot yeah. of weird uh not weird, but those little, the thir- 2013, the 13th and a Friday all to boot. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my sponsor, when, uh, he met me a day after that day said, you got to keep that sobriety day. That's a cool one. Yeah. <laughs> so I've done my best. So yeah. Um, that's when, uh, this whole awesome journey began for me. Um, but really the, the journey of alcoholism it's funny in retrospect. You, um, once you get some recovery, you can start tracking back your alcoholic thinking a lot further back than you thought you could. Yeah, right. Um, I can track mine all the way. I mean, honestly, I can track mine all the way back to kindergarten. My first alcoholic thought not not a thought of drinking, just the thought of being different than right. people around me, um, trying to hold certain things in and and have uh, maintain an image for the world outside of me. So I can track that all the way back there. Yeah, I can certainly uh, relate to that. As as I get more clarity going forward in recovery, and, and my past becomes more and more clear to me. Uh, that for a while, was, there's was like a real veil of between me and a certain point back that I had trouble remembering back through. I don't know if that's almost like a safety mechanism, or I think it was really just the cloudy thinking and the, uh, some kind of weird weird phenomenon when you start your head starts clearing of not seeing back i don't, I don't understand I, i'm not going to try to understand it but again like you said i start becoming more and more clear about my past as i move into the future 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of that um, cloudiness is that the substances we used were doing their job. That's what we were trying to do, right? Yeah, like, right. Yeah, cover all that stuff up. Yeah, and we we forgot about certain traumas and stuff. And now, I mean, some people might think that it's not a blessing to deal with those, but I do because they were lurking under there. Right. They, yeah. they were waiting to sabotage me. So yeah. now that I can see them, I can deal with them. Yep. Continue to shine some light on them and uh, and, and uncover them and and kind of get the dirt off of them and right. Uh, yeah, it was I had a well the uh, that that line that says more will be disclosed mm-hmm. it means a lot of different things to me and that's one of them is uncovering that past. I think it also means things to the future too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, I mean, you know, just I'm not content to let sleeping dogs lie anymore. You know, if right. if, if I if something comes you know through in my brain that I need to deal with, I'm not content to cover that up anymore because I know what that does to me. Tear, yeah. tears me apart right but yeah i could try i know <clears throat> my mom and i've talked about this before the the first day of kindergarten we we carpooled with this buddy of mine that lived around the corner because uh, we had to drive to school and the first day we went to kindergarten my mom drove us and my buddy was crying when we got dropped off at school and i really quickly tried to distance myself from him because I didn't want to, you know, I was already projecting this this tough guy image at, at five years old. And then the next day, my mom said that she tried to give me a kiss in the car before I got out to go into school. And I made her lean down in the car so no one would see. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And those, you know, those can sound like funny antidotes. But knowing what I know now, I know that even at five years old, for, for whatever reason, I already had this pattern of trying to show the world at you know a, a curated life basically yeah and so it's it, it's funny you know those are relatively innocent but yeah well, it's putting it's, on the mask yeah already yeah but you know my my upbringing by all accounts was was pretty good i mean my i have parents that are still together that love each other that love me i have three little brothers you know we lived out in the country east of indianapolis and we we were just rough and tumble outside boys four-wheelers and fishing and you name it we were we were we were outside um the thing that i think started affecting my dual personality if you want to call it that the alcoholic and the and and the real self um at that age is that my parents um belong to a very strict baptist church and they they had had a similar that they they always said that um before up until I was two years old that they were big potheads and and they called themselves drug addicts um that were at church they would give these speeches to all the teenagers and and I even when I was a teenager um I discounted that because I I just didn't I didn't it just didn't put a lot of weight in that but um but what had happened to them is that this guy at my dad's work continually asked him to come visit this church and and they ended up visiting and they had, you know, the quintessential come to Jesus moment at this church yeah. and bought in hook, line and sinker. And we, I mean, my, my entire childhood was spent and, and into my teenage years at, at that church there every time the doors were open three, four days, four times a week, we were there. And, <clears throat> um, I really, I, looking back, I really developed this thing where, I wanted to fit in wherever I was. And so at, at the church, which like I said, was really strict. I wanted to be looked at as 
a strong Christian and, um, you know, someone that people could look up to and like one of the good kids. But then at school where that stuff wasn't so cool, I wanted to be something entirely different. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my childhood was those two personalities of, of really being like the go-getter and and my church really didn't feed into my school that much. It was a little bit of ways away from um, where I went to school. So I didn't even have to, Yeah, had a pretty good partition between those two things. Yeah. I had like, I I really did have two different lives um, going on uh, actively involved in the youth group and stuff there. And uh, so it was, I I began, I I definitely began to resent the church because there, there were so many rules I mean, we couldn't go to movies, couldn't play cards, not supposed to go to dances, not supposed to listen to music that's not Christian. I really started, I mean, it was one of the number one offenders on my first resentments list, just all of the no's. Yeah, hmm. interesting. So, yeah, um, but that that was a big part of my life growing up. Um, then my teenage years was when the trauma started happening. And I, I've heard a lot of people talking about alcoholics that um, – yeah, there's a lot of genetic component to it, but it's also kind of opportunity meets trauma. Yeah. So, you know, you have these crossed wires and they might never, they might never short out your entire life. But if you're in your formidable years and you start experiencing trauma and you have those crossed wires, look out. Absolutely. Yep. So I had a series of, of what I, what I know now to be traumas in my teenage years, uh, started out with, uh, a member of that church acting pretty, he, he had befriended me. He was an older single guy that was really wealthy. And he befriended me and a couple other of my teenage buddies in the, in the church. And he would do really nice things for us. You know, he would take us to Pacers games and Colts games and whatever we really wanted to do. He would spend money on us. And uh, he just, over the time, he started doing some inappropriate stuff. Um, not, I wouldn't say that it was a full on sexual assault kind of stuff, but it was in the the realm of sexual misbehavior. And it, at the time, I, I mean, I I didn't really, I was confused. I didn't really know what was going on because it, it was never so egregious that I knew for sure that it was bad. Right. But at one point it may, there was a situation that made me uncomfortable enough that I said something to my parents which led to a big meeting at the church and I'm willing to admit that I maybe don't remember everything that happened in that completely correctly because I was 12, 13 years old. A lot of times gone on a lot of, a lot of alcohol and drug abuse has gone on since then. So maybe I don't have clearest memories, but what, what I, I can tell you what I carry with from that situation today is that I went into a meeting with the pastor at the church who up until that point I had no reason not to trust and came away from that meeting with either I was sort of making something up or it, what I was making a big deal out of wasn't a big deal. Hmm. And I was, and I was hurt by that. And to me, and I still kind of feel this way. I think that the people involved with judging that situation looked at this guy who donated a lot of money to the church and thought that, as long as there wasn't something super serious with this situation, they would rather keep getting his money. Yeah. And so I didn't feel believed. So that was kind of the first trauma. And well, you then, know, the, the courage it took probably just to do that. First off, I mean, I imagine your insides were coming out trying to just get that out. 
and your soul and spirit knew that you were doing the right thing and then to be completely discounted just as God has to do you know, that, that turn of events it just has to crush a guy's spirit. I mean, I'd think that you, you know, I know you wouldn't know how to, ha- I at that age, you certainly wouldn't know how to process it. No. And if you don't have somebody helping you with that, I would obviously, if you weren't getting the support on the issue to begin with, uh, you wouldn't be getting help on sup- getting that discounting behavior of somebody else. Dis- somebody discounting your, your revelation there, uh, would have definitely been, you know, I, I don't know how you would deal with that other than the way we do. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely tough. Around that same time, maybe it might have been a little bit before then. Um, my, my dad was, I mean, you know, country living. I'm sure you're familiar too. Like, you, you, you scrounge around to get the things you need sometimes, and like he would go buy things off of farmers that were selling stuff, or we'd go to the junkyard for a car part. And this, this time, uh we had gone to a junkyard to find a car part and my, one of my brothers and I went exploring around this junkyard cause you know, it, it, it was fun. And in the back of a wrecked truck or car, we found in the trunk, we found uh, like five beers and a porno tape uh. and we squirrel. It was, it was relatively cold outside. So we squirreled that stuff away in our coat and snuck it home with us. And later that day or the next day, you know, I had my first taste of beer, which was an extremely skunked, old, warm beer. Um, but I do vividly recall saying, man, want more of that. Yeah. It was uh, definitely the lightning going off in my brain. And then you start introducing, you know, the, the, the trauma I just spoke of. And then <clears throat> my mother's the oldest of 10 kids. Wow. Yeah. And so her her youngest sister... Jennifer was only three years older than me. So we were, we were more like siblings. I'm the oldest of my brothers. She's three years older than me. And my, my mom was pretty active in her and my other aunt Jody's kind of upbringing. They would spend a lot of time with us. So she was pretty much a sibling. Well, uh, actually, you know what? I'm out of order here is my, my grandfather died of cancer before this all happened. And that really shook up the Uh home life. Yeah. Personally or the family. The both. family, both. Yeah, I mean, he was, he, was, he was a fireman. He was a tough guy. He was always, you know, he was de- definitely an alcoholic. Um, but he was always a hero of mine. Right, yeah. So um, that, that was rough. I mean, my, my mom's um, family home was always just like this heaven to me. We would go over there for Christmas or New Year's Day, and there'd be kegs of beer on the porch. Mm. You'd walk in and just like that that den of smoke and beer breath and laughter. And it was everything that the church wasn't to me. It was fun. It was people being who they wanted to be to me. You know, like I always romanticized that house so much. I looked up a lot to my aunts and uncles and that's what they were. They were having fun drinking, you know, and I thought that I thought that that was the cure for everything I hated about the church. Right. Yeah. So completely normalized it. And oh yeah. And it made, I mean, I looked up to it. Yeah. I really, I wanted, I wanted them to accept me more than I wanted the church or my parents to accept me. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. I sure get that. So I, you know, I would, uh, but in the, I was probably 13 or 14. My grandfather, he got esophageal cancer and, uh, passed away relatively quickly. And so that was pretty traumatic he was a he was kind of a hero of mine um 
I mean, he was he was a pretty famous fireman around Indianapolis. Everybody knew him. Uh, his funeral was pretty cool. We the procession drove around all over downtown Indianapolis to all the fire stations, and the the firemen that were on duty stood out and rang the bell for him. Very cool. It was a, it was a big deal, but um, even more so than the the loss of that, it I, I think looking back, it affected my mother pretty deeply, and. She was also going through nursing school at the time, so she just had a lot going on. I think it weighed heavy on her, and throw that into the mix, uh, a teenager that's probably starting to veer off into alcoholism. She probably just didn't know how, how to deal with me. Yeah. And now I know she was doing the best that she could, right. and I don't hold any ill feelings towards her, but it it just it, it shook things up. It changed the chemistry. Yeah. And, you know, I always want to make sure, because this is a big point to me when I'm working with people, my sponsor made it a big point to me, was that these things are not, we're not blaming these other folks for oh, this. We, what we do is looking at our at the causes and conditions of the things, the, 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 the things that we've bumped into in our life that, that walked us down the road that we, that we landed on. Yeah, I mean, t- at where I sit now, I've, um, I've made peace with everything about right. these situations and I don't blame, I certainly don't blame my parents for me being an alcoholic. Right. There's no doubt about yeah. that. Uh, I, I'm pretty convinced I was born that way. And then a set of events, you know, lit that tender pile on fire. Right. And I don't really think that the set of events is necessarily my parents. Um, but yeah, it, it was just makeup, you know, these things were formed almost like clay, you know, and it's not any particular one hammer that hits us that, that does it necessarily. It right. might be, could be for some people, could be yeah. one major event for some people, but I think for more times than not, it's the creeping effect. It's kind of like the way we cross the invisible line. A similar kind of thing happens to us when we get, you know, these, these series of events happens that molds our life and, you know, uh, any one of them probably wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. Right. But the, the conglomeration of all of them in a series over time, uh, bends us to, uh, you know, like I said, if you've already got that genetic comp- uh, component in you, then uh, and you have these things bend you that direction, that's the curve you take. The other, you know, uh, I'm not a big Bible thumper by any means, but I do take a lot of the uh, the, the sayings out there, that, that narrow road thing mm-hmm. and the eye of the needle stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that is not our inclination as humans, I don't think. We, no. we go for the goalpost. Yeah. <laughs> Not the, and those are the goalposts in life is the easy path is to go in that direction. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It just, uh, there's some, especially when you already got that pull in you and I don't know where that comes from, but, uh, you know, cause there's camaraderie on both sides, right? You see it at the church and you see it like in your case, I'm just speaking from the things you've shared mm-hmm. today. There's camaraderie at the church and there's camaraderie at the family thing, mm-hmm. you know, but certainly the one I would, I'm going to say, the one looks a lot more inviting, more friendly, more uh, what celebratory. Yeah, and that looks like a celebration. That party, well, especially compared and to this, the church. doesn't right. Yeah, this is to the <laughs> the very opposite most times. You know, uh, so yeah. Which way are you gonna go? Of course, you're gonna go that way. Yeah, I mean, especially you know the the comparison to the church that I grew up in. I mean, this is this is not like the upbeat and fun churches that you see you know the mega churches you see yeah because i think they're bending that too they're seeing that they need that you know to 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 maintain and i don't really know if it's i don't know if it's that that um that plan necessary i'm sure it is to some extent but yeah the church like i've i was on home incarceration i'd spin off on another and uh i would get calls from 
the department wanting to know where I'm at. You know, they could call me at any time. And I'm at church one day, one morning, mm-hmm. and uh, at the and and when they called, and I have to answer that phone, right? And I'm in the middle of the aisle. You know, I look. There's ten people to my left and ten people to my right, <laughs> and uh, and I answer that phone. It sounds like I'm at a rock concert, right? You know, and I'm trying to explain to them, well, what are you doing, Mr. Reese? Uh, I'm at church. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and I'm like, man, you. And they actually did take it really well, but uh, that did not sound like church I'm right. sure on that other side that was a complete uh what uh digression into some other land well the church I grew up in sounded like church I can guarantee yeah. you that oh, not not a lot of from my my viewpoint not a lot of joy there yeah and that's what 30 something years ago yeah yeah and I mean it's just it was I mean in my and I've talked to my parents a little bit about this and they they even have expressed some regret at staying with that church as long as they did because mm-hmm. they started seeing that it wasn't just wasn't working for teenage boys and I mean you think about the the climate of the late 80s and the early 90s like the the grunge movement and all of that stuff like it, it was just so so opposite yeah and you know but I can't I can't look back and redo my mistakes and neither can they so right. and that's yeah. exactly yeah. what I told them right. so but yeah, you know, um, so yeah, my, my grandfather passed and that, and the one thing it did do is it really even tightened my mom's family up even more. We, for such a huge family, we've always been pretty tight. And I mean, now you go over to my grandmother's for Easter and there'll be 45 people there wow. and they're all pretty closely, you know, it's, it, this isn't distant relatives. These are yeah. aunts, uncles, and cousins. Yeah. That's and it's very cool. It's cool. I miss that in my life. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, uh, but it, that that kind of tightened up that family even more. But then, uh, so a couple of years after that, my aunt, the one Jennifer that was three years older than me, uh, she she would have been like nineteen at the time. She w- uh, was murdered. Oh wow! Her and her boyfriend. the 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 facts of it are are a little bit hazy, but um, they were either dealing drugs or just had drugs. And someone broke into their house and, and shot them both to steal their money and drugs. Oh, wow. And That's we real. we found out about this watching the news. Really? We watched her body being taken down the steps. Woo. Yeah. Um, and that was just a soul-crushing moment for me. It, it was pretty much like watching my older sister being hauled out of an apartment. Yeah. Um, that, that was... Uh, that, to me, I mean, if... Like we said earlier, there, it's never one thing, but sometimes it is. And that, that really was the, I think, the final thing that kind of splintered and really fed that alcoholism part of me. Uh, because then after that, every time that I kind of veered towards, you know, that side, like whether my parents, you know, because I wasn't allowed to have music that wasn't Christian music. So if I got, I mean, I remember getting caught with, nirvana or whatever and yeah it, it was really easy for my mom to say well you're gonna end up just like jennifer hmm. you know it became a fear of hers and she saw me the the some of the stuff i was doing was just being a normal teenager some of it was not but some of it was just being a normal teenager it but she she just became fearful and it kind of pushed me further away so it was uh that, that was a tough time, but you know around the same times when I I drank more frequently, um, I 
I tried weed for the first time. I think I was 16 years old, and and that that was really uh, a a light bulb off in the head for sure. Um, and that was for years. That was my you know number one choice. Yeah, yeah. I had it. Uh, I had it closer at hand for a lot of years than any other substance. Yeah, I me too. always had some pot. Yeah, <laughs> me too. And and even all the way up until the end when I was barely using pot, but. I, I usually had it around, and if you asked me, I would have told you I was I was pothead, even though I was feeding myself a lot more stronger things than that. Yeah. But that was always, like, to me, that was a respectable substance I used, yeah. even more so than alcohol. But yeah, I started I started drinking a lot heavier um, when, I, when I had the chance. I didn't always have the chance um, because my parents were pretty strict, so I had— Alcohol's kind of tough to get away with. I learned really good how to lie and sneak and manipulate. Um, that was really the, those years, like 16 to 18, the last two years in my house was like uh, graduate school for my, uh, yeah. my lying and yeah. deceitful nature. Finishing school. It, re- it really was. I mean, I, I got, and I'm, I don't know how much my parents knew. They've never told me. Yeah, that's interesting. But I, I, I feel like I got really good at hiding things. I had little hidey holes in the house and little hidey holes that I built into my backpack so I could transport stuff around. But um, it became pretty clear then that when I drank, I drank until I threw up or passed out. I didn't drink like the other kids I was around. I, I wasn't. I wasn't stopping. And that was uh, pretty early on. I I, ne- I didn't really have the drink a couple beers situation pretty much ever in my life it was the whole bottle or nothing yeah yeah i can uh same here I, the, the little bit never was enough mm-hmm. i was always the last one and you know and passing out and i uh, had a little ego wrapped up about how much i could do whatever oh, yeah. substance it was yeah uh i could do more than you yeah absolutely and I and I I became the same way, and it didn't really matter what it was I was gonna do at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the deal with my parents was if if I wanted to go to college, um, it, that they would only pay for a Christian college. Hmm. So I ended up going to uh, Anderson University for a year, and I absolutely hated it. Um, I learned I learned Greek and Hebrew because I was in a religious studies program. And so I started reading um, more of the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, and I had already, I had already really started questioning my relationship with religion and God. But that really was the nail in the coffin for me, was seeing some what I viewed to be inconsistencies in, in all of these teachings. And so that's when, at that point, you know, eighteen, nineteen years old, that I I decided that this was no longer for me that I was an atheist that I had I didn't want anything to do with spirituality anymore um I thought back then I thought religion god spirituality were all just synonyms I did not know that did not understand that those things could be that spirituality and religion were two separate things yeah I didn't quite grasp that so I threw it all away that to me is really the sickest moment is when Denying any kind of spirituality is what made me the most sick. Yeah. And it and that from then on things got bad. Uh I 
after my freshman year, I, I, I started, I stopped going to that school. I got into the full, full time into the restaurant industry and throwing alcoholic into the restaurant industry. And <laughs> that, that will mature them because there's, it's a stronghold. It's always on the top five list, uh, you know, chefs and restaurant workers are always on the top five, most alcoholics for a profession. And, uh, so I met other people like me and what I didn't know they taught me. Um, and from there, my, my disease progressed pretty quickly. I, I was drinking every night. I was smoking weed. Um, I think it wasn't too long after, you know, I, I actually, my 21st birthday, I was doing, I was, I was already doing ecstasy and cocaine and stuff at, at, at you know, 20 and 21. Um, anything, whatever you got, I'm going to take. Yeah. What is it? What yeah. do you have? But those are, uh, mighty, you know, those are mighty attractive drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hallucinogens. I mean, there's not much I wouldn't try, but I, I did always put some things aside or say like, well, justify my actions by saying, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to smoke crack. I'm not going to do heroin. Never going to do that. Yeah, drew some lines in the sand. Yeah, and I was 21 or 22, and I had a friend from a restaurant supposed to get some Coke and, and meet me at my house after work, and he shows up at my house, you know, 45 minutes after we left work and pulls out the stash, and it's Crack Rocks. And I'm like, dude, what are you – he's like, ah, it's the same thing. I'm like, no, it's not. And But at that point, what are you going to do, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to try it. And so, you know, 21, 22, I'm already crossing one of those lines in the sand right. down yeah. the basement, smoking crack. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was rough. It, it, a lot, a lot of use of any, any substance I could get my hands on. Um, but kept pl- plugging along through my twenties doing, doing that just, uh, I lived with a, a girl for a time and she was fairly unhealthy. And so that, that fed into it pretty heavily. Um, then after her and I broke up, I actually got a job as a general manager of a nightclub. And that gave me a whole new world, a high class kind of uh, journey in my alcoholism where I could drink whatever I wanted. I could afford any drug I wanted, I could act out sexually as much as I wanted. And that was another theme for me in my 20s was the repercussions of that situation with that guy in church was that I was always trying to prove my sexuality. And it caused me to do a lot of misdeeds in in that area as well. Yep. Um, Just, I'm fairly certain, um, you know, hurt some girls or at least take advantage of them. Yeah. Uh, especially in that nightclub setting where, you know, I'm kind of, I'm the guy with the keys. I have all the power. Right. Yeah. And there is a, I was thinking there is a bit of a power thing goes on with being in that position. Yeah. You get to, and exert that. Yeah. Flash it around. Yeah. I mean, I, I would use, I would use anything to, to calm whatever was underneath my, my surface. And I, all this time I'm, no matter how hard I'm struggling inside, no matter how much I hate my life inside, I'm, I'm projecting this demeanor of someone who has it all together and has it all figured out and is happy. And I was, I was not happy. Yeah. I was lonely. 
I mean, I, I was living in a house in the middle of the party area of Indianapolis for a while by myself, and then I had some roommates. But, I mean, it was every, every waking moment of my day I was intoxicated. Every waking moment. It just, it just didn't matter. I was either smoking weed or drinking or snorting coke. It just did not matter. If I was awake, I was messed up. Yeah. And that really, like, set... Before then, I was... I was definitely... I definitely know I was an alcoholic before then, but it wasn't a all-day, everyday thing. Once once I, you know, broke up and moved out from with living with that girl and and had the nightclub thing where, honestly... Nobody would even notice if I came to work drunk. It was it was a dingy dark nightclub, right. so it yeah. was easy. I just it, it, I had no no reason to be sober, and so I wasn't ever. And that set the pattern of, you know, when you start when you give your disease that much space to roam, it's hard to to it's hard to whittle that back at all and say, okay, well that was a fun year. Let's only drink at night now, or let's only drink on the weekends your disease is not going to give that ground back. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's just too hard. Yeah. And so it, it's My really collapsed on me. You know, I do recall a time when I wasn't doing it all the time. Yeah. But I don't really remember how that evolved into doing it all the time. You yeah. Know, it just all of a sudden I was there. I, my days and nights collapsed into just being high on something and not be able to really operate if I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it just does not retreat easily. No, no. There was, like you said, yeah, no giving up that ground. It does mm-hmm. not give up that ground. No, it doesn't. So that that became my new normal. Um, I tried several things to make myself happy. I took, I, I quit that job and moved to Florida for eight months. Thought maybe, you know, the, the old change of geography yeah. would, would work. And I just became an you know, an alcoholic in Florida. So, you know, I was there at, with tourism and whatnot in the restaurant industry. I only had to work three, three days a week to make the money I needed. So it gave me all kinds of time to yeah. do what I wanted. Um, but I came back to Indianapolis again, was miserable down there, came back. Um, and through the, uh, Years I'd always wanted to, I, I, I always wanted to get married and have a family, but I just never, never could make relationships work because my disease would always win out. The, you know, I was all, I was always uh, more in love with, with the demon than I was in love with the girl I was dating. So um, I always picked that demon. Yeah. And, but I did meet uh, my current wife around that time, right before I was 30. And she's really the first everybody else in my life had <clears throat> that had gotten close enough to really get a good glimpse of like I call it the demon or the alcoholism, the, the disease that I have, uh, they didn't stick around. It was, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I could, I didn't, I never got violent drinking, but I could get pretty, I have a sharp tongue. And when I was drinking and using that tongue was super sharp Yeah, and I could say, the absolute right thing to just destroy a person in one sentence. And I, when I was all messed up and hating myself, I did that frequently. Yeah. And pushed a lot of people away over the years. My wife's the first person, you know, I met her right before I turned 30. She is uh, the first person that 
saw something underneath all that that was worth sticking around for. And I don't, I don't know how she saw that underneath all that sickness, but she did. And, uh, and I, I fell pretty hard for her because of it did, but I didn't get sober yet. Unfortunately, I still had more to go on that. And we lived together for a time and then my, she, we did break up and, and move out from one another uh, due to my disease and just me having meltdowns and getting so messed up all the time. And she eventually, you know, we decided not to live together anymore. That, that really destroyed me shortly thereafter. We, her and I still kind of stayed in contact. We had a real hard time not being together. Um, we weren't technically together, but, uh, I, for the past few years, right around that time, my dad and I had, had started an irrigation company and we were working together. We were installing um, lawn sprinkler systems and making pretty good money at it. And he and I had gotten into some silly political fight and decided not to work together that day. And uh, so I just got completely smashed all day long. I mean, pills, weed, alcohol all day long. My wife came over to see me that night I was in absolute shambles I had gotten so mad about the situation or just being drunk that I had punched a a door jam and gave myself a pretty healthy boxer's fracture in my hand it was that 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 day I I agreed to let them take me to a hospital and went into they actually put me on the suicide unit where you know they took my shoelaces and everything because I had harmed myself right um, so sat there and it was miserable, uh, that I, I was there with, you know, what at, at the time I thought were some pretty down and out cases. Yeah. And everybody else was. Yeah. Everybody else was. I was, just, it was just a mistake that I was here. I punched a wall. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, what I did realize is that I needed to stop drinking. It was, it was destroying my life. And that's what I told the doctors there when I told them that I needed to be let out. They wanted me to stay quite a while. They wanted they wanted me to do the I you know I don't know if that was a long term place. My memory's a little hazy on it. Yeah. But if it wasn't a long term place, I think the doctors wanted to transfer me to one. Yeah. Was that Indy? Yeah, it was an in Indy. Um, they definitely wanted to funnel me into AA. They definitely wanted to funnel me into a, a an inpatient program. They saw. I somebody. can't imagine why. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I have no idea to this day. Uh, oh, it's a mess. Um, but I, you know, I told the doctor that I was fine. That I didn't want to hurt myself. Blah blah blah. And so I, I managed to talk. You know, they couldn't hold me, so I, I got out. And I got out with the idea that I wasn't going to drink anymore. And for a while, it worked. I did. I, I smoked a lot of weed, but I didn't drink. And at the, around the same time, a friend of mine came up to me with an opportunity to move to the middle of nowhere in Michigan and build a huge pole barn and grow copious amounts of weed. Fun. Yeah. And I jumped on that with, you know, both feet and went up there and started doing that. And that really, I didn't drink that whole time. So that like from scratch, there was no building when you went? No. So you helped to yeah. build this thing actually and yeah. put it together. Yeah, we built the whole system. Um, this was right before there were this was right before all the states started <clears throat> falling to um, legalization. And so his idea and this 
this buddy of mine is a fairly smart entrepreneur. Um, just maybe targets it the wrong direction sometimes, but uh, well, you know that's not a bad foresight there. I mean, there's a lot of people making money doing that today. Yeah, and and he was he was really good at it. You know, he had done it on small on small scales and basements and stuff for a long time, and and uh, I had seen what he had done quite a bit. But he, you know, he needed somebody like me. He needed somebody that didn't have direction, <laughs> that um, didn't have a lot of strings, and that would be willing to live out in the middle of nowhere and and do this. Because he couldn't, he had other stuff going on. He couldn't be the one living at the barn. Oh, okay. So he needed, he needed someone to live there and do it. So I did. And uh, I actually got to live on a, close by there, his family had a cabin on a, on a lake in Michigan and I got to live there. I had a dirt bike, a snowmobile, a boat. Um, I mean, I, so there were days I would snowmobile over to the barn, you know, a few miles away, but, um, we were growing 20, 25 pounds every three months. So we were putting out a lot of product Wow! and I was making good money and I was smoking an ounce of weed a day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I got to the point where, just weed wasn't enough. It, I wasn't going to smoke if I didn't have hash too. Hmm. So I, I was, I was super high, but I was going around telling everybody I was healthy because I wasn't drinking. Right. I'm not drinking. Yeah. Well, like a pat ourselves on the back. Um, yeah. And I, and I was, I was pretty isolated up there. I mean, especially during the winter, um, the area of Michigan I was in, <clears throat> the area of Michigan I was in, was pretty much a ghost town during the winter because it was uh, a lot of lakes and and stuff. So it was all summer cottages. So I was pretty isolated. Uh, spent a lot of time just me and my dog. Uh, you know, the I look back and I think about all the hard work that that barn took, and I I think I mean I wasn't lazy. You know, right. I, yeah. if I would have turned my attention to something more productive, I would have been successful. Something about the being an outlaw always appealed to me. Yeah. And I, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, even though I was working, I was probably in that barn 13 or 14 hours a day. It was a lot of work, but, uh, my wife and she was my girlfriend at the time. She, um, she started, uh, contacting me again and she, uh, we started kind of rekindling our relationship a little bit and, all of a sudden the isolation wasn't working anymore. So uh, I decided to cash out, move back to Indy, be with her again. And it turned out to be a really good decision because not long after that, the buddy that, that owned the barn made a couple of transactions with some people in California and mm -hmm. he ended up getting arrested and I would have been arrested too. Yeah. That's one of those things looking back, um, knowing that that was probably a higher power deal because <clears throat> I could have been walking around with a pretty serious record, but I mean, I got out four months in, in front of it. Wow. But, uh, I used that Did money. He from my, hmm? Did he go to jail? He, he had money. So that'll he, help you stay out of jail. Yeah. He, he got, he got some punishment, but he didn't spend much time behind bars. So he got he got pretty lucky on that, and yeah. and I've actually talked to him several times since then, and and we've I've actually made amends to him because whether or not what we were doing was legal or right or wrong had nothing to do with the fact that 
I, I was an asshole to him. He gave me an awesome opportunity. I acted like he was an overbearing boss, you know, that, that martyr complex. Oh, yeah. you don't understand me. You make me work too hard. Well, uh, so I've, I've since actually made amends to that guy, make things right. Yeah. Which uh, some people maybe don't understand, but I, I definitely wronged him. Right. Yep. And so. some of this, uh, you know, I, some amends is just clearing the, cleaning the street, whether if you really, you know, I mean, you don't, there's, you don't necessarily have to actually hurt somebody necessarily. Right. Uh, you know, maybe you, you know, if you felt that you had some, some cleaning to do, some clearing is a term I've been using lately. I've heard mm-hmm. some people use it. I just need to clear this thing between me and this other person uh, because it's sitting on me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it was, so I've, I've actually since made, made that right. Yeah. But yeah, um, I cashed out to go back to Indianapolis and be close to my girlfriend at the time. And I used that money to what I'd always wanted to do was become a chef. So I used that money to go to culinary school. Um, still not drinking, still just smoking a lot of weed, occasional hallucinogens, um, at a party or whatever, but never drinking. And, uh, and I, I remember making these half-ass amends to like my family, like oh, I'm real sorry. I'm, you know, nothing like what we right. instruct people to do now. Yeah. Just, just saying I'm sorry. So, uh, culinary school, and then my wife at work ended up getting transferred down here to Louisville, and she went without me for a couple of months, and then I, I was really in love with her, and so um, decided to follow her down here and transfer down here to finish culinary school, and. Uh, Got a job in a fine dining restaurant as a line cook. And that's when started having that old familiar friend start whispering to me again. And the lie this time came in the effect of, well, I'm almost I'm almost done with culinary school. I'm working in a fine dining restaurant, cooking all this amazing food. I, I need to be able to taste wine with my food. <laughs> and that's that's the lie that I told. Um, I told my she was still my girlfriend at the time. The lie I told myself, the lie I told my family when they, you know, at a gathering and they said, you know, you mind if I have a, a just a glass of wine? Um, and that glass or two of wine, you know, this, I think I had not drank alcohol for a year and a half. So you admitted to yourself that alcohol was a problem and you'd also admitted it to your family members. So they, you were doing somewhat of a, it wasn't quite cool to be drinking openly in front of them, but the wine was the door because it's uh, yeah. it's high class if you're drinking a little wine. Oh, they they you know, and it's, plus it goes with meals, right? I mean, it's part of the food industry. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I used all that stuff, and and I mean, there were there were no delusions between my family or friends that I had a problem with alcohol. Yeah, I just didn't stop. I I, I and I I, I kind of blessed or cursed with an iron stomach. So I don't throw it up either. So I just keep going. I mean, I have to pass out. Yeah, I never was a puker either. Yeah. I, I Oblivion, passing out is the only thing that stops me. Yeah. And, and running out does not stop me because I will walk on broken glass to the right. liquor store and get more. I will pay that guy in quarters if I have to. Yeah. I have before. Um, so, but yeah, uh, so I introduced the alcohol back into my life with that lie. And it was it wasn't. We talk a lot about how our our disease lies in wait for the avenue back in, and it's it's got, getting stronger. Man, it it was stronger. It it wasn't a few weeks after that initial glass of wine that I'm back to drinking all day every day, 
I, at that point, crossed that other line in the sand and started delving into opiates. It was kind of casual at first, but as the years this time in my life went on, it got to be very habitual. Um, Pills. Pills. Uh, towards the end, um, when I there were a couple of times that I couldn't get pills that I actually ended up trying heroin. Yeah, yeah. but the beginning of it was yeah. the pills. Yeah, the beginning of it was the and pills. And it was recreational solely. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, you know, because a lot of guys' stories are some kind of injury or something happens and, and that, you know, leads them into it. No, no, I sought uh, it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no one prescribed yeah, that yeah. to me. Just making that, cl- just making that clear here in the story. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. there is a definite, definite. You know, not that one matters any more than the other, but a lot of guys or people have that deal where they had a surgery or they, mm-hmm. you know, something tipped them in that direction. Uh, kind of a little bit, you know, they didn't really seek it out. Yeah, uh, you know, mine's a little different. Is that my mom had them, and 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 I really, I pick, I I I remember picking up the bottle. I remember picking up the bottle, reading it, having really no clear idea about what it really was but i i remember seeing it said take these for pain and i knew i had pain yeah you know it wasn't back pain it wasn't you know it wasn't but i i was hurting and uh and and that's the way that led me and then like in your end of it probably from the atmosphere probably from were they just available in the rest in the food industry oh yeah so it was just a it was a supply thing where they they were there yeah and they were easy to get to people had them well Uh, and you know, a lot of so-called normal people, when they take opiates, they get sleepy or groggy or lazy or whatever. Yeah, speed for me. Speed for me. And not only speed, but in the kitchen, it made me feel like a superhero. Yeah, right, yeah. I could I could work all day. You could, you give me a, a bottle of pills that doesn't end and magic. some music and some coffee, and I will work seven days straight for you. Yeah. Uh, back then I could, I, I, I could work around the clock for you. Yep. Right. Th- those are my only requirements. Um, so yeah, but it did start recreationally and I'm, I'm still trying to manage uh, at this time. My, uh, still girlfriend at the time and I had decided to get married. So I'm still trying, you know, she, she knew I had a problem with drinking, but I had, I was doing a pretty good job of hiding it. She, she definitely didn't know about the pills. Um, she just thought that I went overboard sometimes. She didn't, you know, she didn't know what she knows now, basically. So, but uh, I was miserable. I was in pain. And I did this thing that I, that I hear so many of us do is that I'm going to feel better when. You know, we were living in an apartment. I'm going to feel better when we buy a house and I won't drink as much the same year we're going to get married. I'm going to feel better when this dream of being married finally happens. Uh, I had gotten done with culinary school, so I'm going to feel better when I get an actual chef job and I'm not a line cook anymore. Well, the, the bad thing that happens when you do that is that you get to that moment and you don't feel any better about yourself. Right. And instead of that moment making you feel good, it makes you feel worse because it gives you that hopelessness that if this thing that I've been counting on for so long isn't making me feel better, then nothing's going to. And so I might as well pour more pills and alcohol on this situation. It, it became, it, that became what happened. And I've heard even, you know, I've heard movie stars and rock stars talk about this phenomenon too. Like 
they they're sitting there with millions of dollars the the fame the whatever they want and they, the things that they always thought would make them happy and it's not making them happy there's no more desperate spot than that yeah so i i just didn't think you know my my wife so we were we gotten married bought a house she she just wanted me to be happy and she didn't understand why i couldn't be happy i had everything going for me i had gotten a i had gotten that sous chef job in a i mean one of the top restaurants in town was well respected in my industry uh we i was i'm married to a wonderful amazing woman we own a house uh, what what is anybody else given that set of circumstances is going to have a good time and i was just miserable um but uh around that time i was sous chef at this fine dining restaurant uh i had guys that were delivering me pills in the back at the back door of the restaurant all the time i would i would if i couldn't get enough pills or just because i wanted to i was i would drink out of the the cooking liquor in fine dining you don't cook with nasty liquor i mean i i was drinking good bourbon out of the liquor cabinet yeah. at work right taking pills um and I, I had some really great honors in that job i got to go to the james beard house in new york and cook there and i which is anybody's not in the cooking world it's almost i mean that's that's the mecca that's the thing you want to do is go to the beard house in new york and cook huh. it's it's highline and I look back at pictures of myself there. I was in a complete blackout the entire time. Here I am, one of the greatest honors that a chef can ever get, and I barely remember it. Yeah. About a couple of my, I mean, my disease was just, this is the Tasmanian devil at that point, just bumping into everything, running over everything, killing me, absolutely killing me. My wife and I had, um, we were trying to start a family. We had gone through a, a series of miscarriages, uh, that was, I I took all that and made that such a selfish pain. Didn't really attend to her. I just used it as another excuse to, to get as fucked up as I could. Yep. And it just, you get more this, trauma, more calamity. Yeah. And everything's just like crescendoing. It's like the whole orchestra is playing different music and getting louder and louder and louder. And it's just chaotic inside my brain. And I'm not letting anybody in there Yeah. because it is just a nut house. Noisy. There. Yeah, it's just insane. And, uh, but one Friday night, super, super busy at, uh, at work. I had just overdosed myself a little too much. Not overdosed, but gave myself too many pills, too much alcohol. And I put my head down on my desk in the, uh, the kitchen at work and nodded off. Yeah. And that is an overdose, but not yeah. in the same way that we that the common uh, thought of it today with the shooting up over the the heroin overdoses and that kind of stuff. You certainly overdosed. You don't go to sleep at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the my my employees were so worried about me that they had to bust the door down. So you were in a locked office. Yeah, it was a locked office. But there's a big window, so all my line cooks. So they could see you. Yeah, but okay. They, you know, I had that. I heard heard did you mention that before, and I was kind of like, well, what would make them, you know, come into a locked room? Yeah, they, necessarily. They, they could see me, and, they, and you know, they probably needed me. Yeah. <laughs> would this office be locked when you weren't there? Uh, yeah, yeah. We we kept all, you know, we had to we had to lock the liquor away from the line cooks. They might take it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
So, yeah, I was, I was in there. and uh, They had to break the door down. They had to break the door down. And, uh, yeah, uh, so the, the restaurant own, owner didn't want to fire me, but she just didn't feel like she had a choice. She couldn't set this, she couldn't set this precedent that, you know, that was okay for somebody in management to do that. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I think, and I've always told her since, and I, I, I usually contact her about once a year and tell her what a great deed she did, did for me. Um, because that started my journey into the rooms and I, and I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately cause I usually, um, ascribe me getting sober to losing that job. And I, and that's been a part of my story for five years now that, um, and I've even, I've even expressed it in such a way to say, um, you know, I wish I could say that, that it was my wife that caused me to get sober, but it was the loss of a job. And I was meditating not too long ago and saw that, that scenario differently. It was, I mean, yeah, getting fired definitely woke me up, but it's the first real thing that I lost. And the only other thing in my life that I had that I put any value on was my wife. I was, I've always been madly in love with her and losing something became very real in that moment when mm-hmm. I lost my job because it was a dream of mine. So that, getting fired really pushed me right into the open arms of AA because I needed help. I didn't want to do this anymore. I mean, leading up to the, uh, the days where she, I wouldn't work until the evening. She, she would go to work in the morning. And so I would wake up at nine o'clock and lay there like I was asleep until she left the whole time. The monologue in my head is you're not going to go to the liquor store today. Not going to go to the liquor store today. I have to work later, mind you. And as soon as as soon as she's out the door, and I think she's far enough away that we won't run into each other on the roads. Uh, nine fifteen, nine thirty in the morning, I'm down getting a pint of bourbon. Wow. And I'm down in that in like, um, you know, five minutes. That's down the hatch. Uh, I then I'm texting the guys to make sure that I can get pills later because there's no way that I can work now without them. Yep. And that was every day for me, every single day. So I was miserable. But uh, that night after, or the in the days after getting fired, um, you know, I was definitely trying to manage the situation with my wife. I didn't want to lose her. So I, I agreed to go to AA. I'd always stayed away from AA because of the God talk. Um, you know, I had spent, at this point, 15 years as an atheist and ha- and I knew what they put on their wall. I saw the G word. I didn't want any part of it. Yeah. But at this point I had to manage the situation a little better than I had been. Was it just uh did somebody say, I mean like what made, what sent you to AA? Was there just knowing that just like from, you know, I mean, I know everybody kind of has an exposure to it. It's like saying, you know, triple A or, or, you know, McDonald's, we kind of know what it is, but was there something that pointed you that direction? I actually, um, I remember doing some research online, trying to figure out, like, basically try, trying to get my ass out of trouble. And so I was looking around at all the different treatments yeah, around What town. might I do? Yeah. And because I was trying to find a way other than AA. Yeah. But every single one of these treatment places that I would look up, you know, one of the requirements is you go to meetings. And so I'm like, well, hell, 
<laughs> I might as well just go try this thing. Because I, I, if I go to this treatment center, they're going to make seems me go to be to, the common denominator for the, around. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, I don't think I'm getting out of this. So I, I, I'll never forget that meeting. It was a Sunday morning. My wife went with me. Both of us probably looking like, you know, roadkill. I know I did. And uh, sat in my first AA meeting. And and when they said, is anybody here for the first time, their first ever AA meeting, I raised my hand and for the first time said out loud in front of somebody that knew me that I was an alcoholic. That was the first in my series of just a release and a relief come wash over me just to say that in front of my wife that I'm an alcoholic and uh, to let one lie escape my body was it was my first spiritual experience in maybe my whole life um it it gave it you know I had to do more obviously but it gave me like it gave me some instant hope just to say that in a, in a room full of strangers but uh, after the meeting, a guy just made an absolute beeline over to me, and that uh, turned out to be my, my my still sponsor, Chris. He he had, he'll tell the story that you know he was inside his own head because he had just had knee surgery and he was going through it, and he never went to this meeting. He was only there because he was miserable from going through a knee surgery, and when he heard that there was a guy there for his first AA meeting, he said, "Well, there's my guy." I need, I can get out of my head by going and helping that guy. And so he came right over to me. We sat in the back of the token club and talked for a couple hours. And first AA meeting, I asked him to be my sponsor. Wow. Uh, we started working the steps. My wife week. was with you that day. Yeah. So my wife was with me. So she, <clears throat> did she come just, back and sit and listen? No, no. She, she, she gave me the space. You know, she, I don't quite remember what she did. She probably talked to some people. Yeah. You know, yeah. we went to that back room with the couches and sat down and I mean, started working the steps that week. I didn't have anything else to do. I was unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was given the gift of a free schedule. Um, so, yeah, started working the steps pretty seriously. Uh, started, I mean, I, I definitely did. You know, we, you hear a lot in the program about 90 and 90, you know, going to 90 meetings in 90 yep. days. I spent about two months unemployed in that time period. And in those two months, I guarantee you, I went to more than 90 meetings. I, I probably went to close to 110 meetings in 60 days. I just threw myself into it. I wanted, I did not want to lose my wife. Um, at the same, well, the same week that I got fired, we found out she was pregnant. No. I had a lot of vested interest in yeah. Staying sober, right? I I I I remember the the night that they that I passed out at work, sitting there with her and uh, crying. I'm still intoxicated and saying, "I'm going to be a good dad. I promise, I'm going to be a good dad." And for the first time in my life, I meant it, and I was I meant something that I said, and I was willing to go do some work to get it. And that that was definitely part of my motivation. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so I started working the steps, going to meetings. I was meeting with uh, Chris <clears throat> all the time. Found a good home group, which I think is really important. Uh, you know, all those hundred meetings are great, but I needed a place to call home to where people actually got to know the real me because I needed to stop hiding. Right, yeah. And 
you can still hide in the rooms of AA pretty easily you if can. you don't have a home group. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm pretty, you know, with my sponsees now, I'm pretty adamant about regular attendance at a home group, at least one, so that you can get you people Start actually getting can connected. look in your eyes and see when the light's on or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of that shining, the light, letting the light in, yeah. is letting other people see you. Yeah. And uh, and establishing that community, that connection. Uh, you know, I know today I'm reliant upon my brothers in my home group just as the same way I'm reliant on this higher power that I'm leaning on. I am just as much in, in reliance of maintaining the connection with you guys. I know that is uh, vitally important to my recovery. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's uh I can't do this without you guys. Yeah. I just can't. But you know that whole the flip the other side of that is is this damn thing that we have where we think we can, right? That we can manage it. And I don't have to do that and I don't have to let you in and I can just come to the meetings and I can just, you know, like I said, I don't I'm I'm with you on that. Uh there's certain things I expect a guy to do and and that's one of them. <laughs> yeah, I just and the the other thing is like I'm I'm natural. My natural state is to isolate. Yeah. I mean, I my wife is the love of my life, but before I got sober, I relished the moments when I got to just be at the house by myself. Yeah. Like she had to go, you know, she has venues out of town and she had to go stay the night in like Cincinnati. And I was, I was so excited. I get the house to myself. I can use the way I want to use. I don't have to hide things. I mean, there's, there's a pretty famous picture of me going around on our group thread that gets shown every now and then of a couple of weeks before I got sober and uh, she had FaceTimed me from Cincinnati when she was on one of those trips. And I, I look like I need to be taken to the hospital. I am messed up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I relish that isolation because I could get full-blown all the way out. I mean, there were days that I looked in the – I remember looking in the mirror thinking I, ha, I had taken too much that I was going to die. And then a half hour later, I'm taking more. Right. But that's the kind of sickness. Yeah. But uh, back to getting into the program, it. I was blessed – you know, like we, we talk about a lot, like the, these coincidences that we just can't ascribe to being coincidences. Um, there's a lot of people, good people that I really respect today that could have walked up to me that morning at the at the token club. And I'm not. I'm really grateful that it was Chris that walked up to me because he has some similar uh, worldviews and values about the spiritual side of our program that I needed to hear that day that I would have, if I didn't hear what he had to say and the way he said it, I might've ran away. I might not have stayed. I needed to hear that the, that the, to not worry so much about the God words on the wall, that spirituality and religion are way different, that it doesn't matter if I ascribe a lot of uh, trauma to the religion I was raised with and, and, and don't, like or believe in that God, I could form a higher power in my own understanding. And the way he put that, I, 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 in my first week, I had some pretty profound spiritual awakenings. It, I was one of the guys that was blessed with a pretty big aha moment in that first week. Yeah. And I just, I started really working hard at it. I, it, it clicked for me. Uh, when I decided that I could be a spiritual creature again, that that started a lot of healing in me. Um, so much so that I think I was only three months sober. That that pregnancy that we had found out about in uh, the week that I got fired ended up we ended up having a very late term uh, miscarriage. <clears throat> and uh, 
instead of doing anything like I'd done before, that very, it, it was on a Monday that we had gone to the doctor, 20 weeks pregnant, and they couldn't find the heartbeat. Wow. Devastating. Devastating. And I spent, you know, I spent that day con- actually being a good husband to my wife and get making, listening to her, allowing her to grieve, allow, allowing her to grieve with me instead of running from it. And the other bizarre thing I did was I went to my home group that night. And as soon as I walked in and they said, does anybody have a burning desire? I raised my hand and said, yeah, I do. And I told that whole room of guys about what I'd gone through three months sober. The guy sitting next to me had gone through the exact same situation about six months prior. Wow. Put his arm around me, said, dude, you're going to get through this. It's all right. And I was able to navigate that situation with honestly, without even really a thought of, of drinking to bury it. And, you know, I never try to get too sure or arrogant about my sobriety, but I always think that there's some situations that once you navigate through them, especially in the early days and you do it sober, it gives you a certain amount of confidence in, in the, in the track you're on. And that's one of those situations where, you know, if six months from then I drank because I had a bad day at work, what a dick I would have been. Yeah. Like you made it through your wife having a miscarriage sober, but because your boss yelled at you, you're going to drink. You're an asshole. Yeah. So it gave me a lot of confidence to, to move forward. And, and I did. And, uh, man, the promises just keep, they kept coming true for me. They kept, uh, I got, I got a job that was better, in my opinion, better than the job I had. It didn't have the ego boost that working in a fine dining restaurant did, but what it did was it gave me a Monday through Friday job where I'm working, feeding people in office buildings, and there's not a lot of unhealthy people around. There's not a lot of nightlife around. I get to be home at night and the weekends to be with my wife. Uh it gives me a much better life and I get paid better than I did in the fine dining world. Yeah. And that, that happened to me three months over. Wow. Uh, just, and the promises just kept, you know, the, the more I aligned myself with the compass that I always had in me that I tried to break, the more satisfaction I got out of life. Uh, we, we did end up having, um, we did end up having successful pregnancies and we now have two kids. Um, I am a pretty dorky dad about the fact that I just believe I was put on this earth to be a dad yeah. to those two boys. Yeah. yeah. I love them. I love that about you. That's something that shines, uh, brightly is your, uh, your fatherhood, uh, is a, is a big beaming light that I see often. Yeah. I just, I just, I love it. I, I, and I get the time to do that now. Um, I've 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 not had a perfect walk in sobriety. There's been mistakes, especially in that first year. Oh yeah. You know, when you when you beat back out, you know, the the substances out of your life, that disease you know, we say, you know, that this disease uh wants us dead, but drunk will do. Yeah. Well, it all miserable will do for it too. Yep. And so it it'll it'll figure out any fire it can light. So there's definitely been some especially in that first year, some situations that, um, like we, like the promises do say, like 
baffled me, you know, that, that I could find myself doing, you know, stupid things. But, um, you know, after that first year, I really started looking into how I work these principles and all, all my affairs, how I can take what I've learned to stop drinking and drugging and turn it to other unhealthy patterns in my life. Cause it's, to me, it's all about the patterns. When I feel a certain way, I look for an external stimuli to make that feel better. And those, those external stimuli are almost never good for me. Uh, Sometimes now they can be, I mean, I can put, I can put exercise in right. me or yep. something like that, but my my first reaction yeah, is probably my default not. position is usually not that. No, I mean, and, and it may not be a, a drink or a drug that I, I look to, but it could it, it could be something just as equally destructive. Yeah. yeah. So you know, this morning, and I don't know where it came from, but I was out here setting up this morning, and uh, a nicotine crave come over me, you know, and like if I'd had a can of dip, uh, then I, and it and it come across that plainly was that you know it wouldn't be a big deal. And, uh, and, and where it comes from, I have no idea. And like I said, that's not the worst thing I could be doing. Uh, but I do worry today that if I allow like some backsliding and some other mm-hmm. better habits that I've started and bad habits that I've let put down, I'm, I do have a thing in me that I, th- I do feel like if I started allowing myself to backslide in any one area, that it could be a, it could be the first slip yeah. uh, of me backing into some of the other things that would be a hell of a lot worse for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, uh, that, that, you know, I haven't really, I don't, I can't think of the last time like a drink or a drug has like tempted me. Uh, yeah. But it's funny like the, the and, and, but the nicotine, and maybe it's because it's the most recent one. It's still been 480 something days. That's, that's pretty coming awesome. Up on 500 days, but it still will come tap me on the shoulder once in a while. We call it the Nick bitch in our nicotine quitting yeah. world. Nick bitch come tapping on your shoulder. Uh, so yeah, you're saying to, to 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 watch for those other things to to come. I don't know what. I guess that's just that whole disease concept thing of looking for that external solution. It, I, I always look at chemical it as solution, like a, a game of whack a mole going on in my head. You know, like. You get the you get that mallet down on alcohol and opiates and stuff. Well, the mole pops up over here. Yeah, and uh, that's always the vision I have in my head. It's just, it's just the way I'm wired, and I I I know now some ways to to cover that whole board. If 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 I'm doing the right program, I cover that whole. If I'm working with others, if I'm meditating daily, if I'm eating right. If I'm clear on my side of the street, you know, if I'm exercising, like all those things combined and the disease is, is pretty under wraps. Yeah. But if I, I can let loose on one of those things for a day or two at a time, um, certain ones. But if I, uh, if, if multiple ones of those things start going unattended to, then all of a sudden I, I can just feel it. You just feel like the. It, the beast waking up, you know, like looking around and it's it like you said, it's not like a craving for an, uh, a, a drink or a drug. It's just kind of like this feeling of looking around for like, you know, almost feel like Quentin. What can I set on fire? Yeah. <laughs> what in my life can I set on fire? Yeah. Yeah. Like a low level anxiety or something that yeah. just is like just an uneasiness and a, and a discomfort. I guess it's that beginning of that restless, irritable and discontent. Yeah. It's a discontentedness. Yeah. I, I actually do remember the um, 
the last time that a drink sounded like a good idea and it's only been a year ago and my my son had to we had to take him to the emergency room he had uh gotten bitten by a dog in the face <clears throat> and uh it it was rough for me and i blame myself because my wife wasn't there at the time and in the middle of the night i'm having to go to my chef office to arrange some stuff for me to be out of work the next day to take care of my son he's still in the emergency room getting stitched up and it wasn't necessarily that a drink or a drug sounded that great the oblivion that came along with it to to give myself a temporary you know pass on the guilt i was feeling turn off the feelings yes you know like like our one of our favorite authors says uh Brene brown you you don't get to just numb the bad stuff though yeah when you numb it you numb the good stuff too yep and thankfully that night at 4 30 in the morning or whatever it was where i'm i'm driving across is when i my unit was over in indiana i'm driving over the ohio river and i remember vividly sitting there just thinking like oblivion sounds good and 4 30 in the morning i call my sponsor and he picks up the phone <laughs> and I tell him how I'm feeling and he tells me that I'm being silly, that it's not my fault, that these things happen and that Emmett's going to be fine and that I'm only going to wake up from oblivion feeling even more guilty because I'll have two things to feel guilty about. Yep. And just the magic of this program that at 4.30 in the morning, I don't even have to dial my phone twice. Yeah, no doubt, dude. And somebody picks up. Yep. Well, like you said, that, that, for whatever reason, how that works, and and and, and I really don't give a shit how it works. Uh, yeah. That when I get that compass needle aligned, or I'm attempting to, it doesn't have to be aligned, because that would like insinuate I got some perfect thing going on. Right. But when I'm making efforts in my life to make those course corrections and keep it that direction, those kind of things, that guy picks up the phone. That's the sponsor, the future sponsor sits next to you in the meeting. Mm. The guy who has just had a miscarriage not too long ago is sitting by you in a different meeting. These, these, I call miracles. You said promises, same thing. That's yeah. the same connotation in the, in the, in the, in, in our lives of, of uh, being aligned and having things work out. It's yeah. just, uh, I always say like, oh, whatever his higher power thing is, didn't bring me. I know when I come down to this, uh, this spot, sometimes a self-doubting nature, I think is another common, you know, there's a bunch of common attributes we have. This yeah. not feeling good enough, not being enough, uh, the, uh, of the self-doubting nature that we have, uh, that just can't work out for me. You know, after right. having everything that's happened for me in the past four years, I will still sit down and say this next thing won't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and I go, well, you know, my higher power didn't bring me this far to drop me off. I just can't believe that that's happened, that, that the universe, whatever this power that has allowed me to have what I've, uh, to, to be open to receiving the stuff that I have received, uh, is not going to end tomorrow. You well, know, so I, that's I, that reliance too, that, that no one, uh, life is a momentum building thing. There's a snowball that comes with recovery. It yeah. keeps on gaining ground and, and you can become more and more solid in your recovery and knowing that the next thing that happens is going to work out for you. Yeah, and, and the, the other part of it is that I could be given far, far less of a thing today and be happier than, than that same thing being given to me eight years or a better thing given to me eight years ago. It, nothing was making me happy yeah. back then. No yeah. external thing. It was an inside job. Yeah. So, I mean, part of the promises or miracles for me is that the way I view everything has changed. Absolutely. So, Perception. Yeah, I mean, no, 
I mean, back then a million dollars wouldn't have made me happy. Yeah. You know, it, it just wouldn't. Yeah. I, I know that. Actually, I, I'm pretty pretty certain a million dollars would have killed me. <laughs> right. Eight years ago. Yeah. Six years ago. Um. So, but yeah, the. Uh, so I, after that first year, though, um, I really, I really concentrated on making it a, a, a whole life thing, and then, you know. Around the same time, I started going to, you know, my current home group, Spiritual Underground, which, you know, I'll echo what you've said before. If you don't think your home group's the best one in the world, get a new one. Um, I know intellectually that we don't have the best home group in the world, but I feel like we do. Well, you know, today it's the best one for me. Exactly. And when I say that, when I say the best spot that I have the best sponsor in the world and I have the best home group in the world, I'm speaking from my experience. I'm not saying that mine needs to be yours at any level, right? Right, right. So it is. It's the best home group for me today. Yeah. And I needed a group of, you know, I've, because of all that dodging and manipulating and never letting anybody in to see the true real me, um, I never had, I never had the kind of friends that most people maybe that aren't alcoholics have in their life. I didn't have that super loving male friend ever in my life. And, uh, my current home group where I met this group of guys now I do. I mean, I have, I have a a core group of guys that they, they know everything about me, everything. And they still, despite knowing everything about me, still look at me and say they love me, which sometimes astounds me, but it's the truth. And I love them. And, uh, we share, we share so much together. I mean, we're, a lot of us are getting our families together tonight to, you know, have a chili cook off. Yeah, right. Yep. You know, we're, 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 we're these days we're making excuses to get together because we do love each other that much. Um, but that, that was first part of the progression is just, uh, really, I think spiritual underground really opened me up even more. Uh, my old home group was great, but, uh, I wanted, there wasn't super deep connection for me there. Now, some of the same people went to that home group. And I had pretty good connections with them, but I think getting into that room with, with just guys where we get to open up a little bit more. And, and when I first started going there, we maybe had 15, 20 guys top. So it was pretty intimate. So, uh, that really started that the next progression, I think in my sobriety. And then, you know, some, some of the guys in that room that inspired me and you're one of them to, to take it to the next level again in the past couple of years where, you know, I finally started, um, finding out the meditation part of, of my program, which has been huge for me. I started, I'm an avid reader. I always have been, but I started reading some stuff to really wrap my head around making the spirituality part personal for me. And, uh, and to, to form a deeper spiritual connection and, and I've, that's been really my mission for the past couple of years. And a year ago when I celebrated four years, I stood up and said, you know, this year I need to sponsor people. That That's my mission. And lo and behold, a couple of months later, I had not one sponsee. I have three. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they just fall into my lap. Um, you know, it's like I put it out there in the universe and then whoop, there you go. Right. More yeah. than what you asked for. Absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, I, I had sponsored people before. Um, one of them went back out, one of them moved to Alabama and is still sober. But, uh, you know, this is the, the three I have now are just, it's just been a great experience. Um, you know, one guy's super fresh in the program. 
And so that's been fun to work with him, fun to see the light go on. I mean, it's so rewarding to see a guy's eyes change, yeah, demeanor change. Yeah. And he calls me every morning. I mean, I every morning on the way to work, I at the same time he calls me and just starts my day off the right way thinking about somebody else. Yeah. Um it, it, so yeah, the, the the sponsorship deal this year has been been huge and you know, I'm not sitting here trying to think I've got it all figured out, but um there are times where I sit and I think how how could it get better than this? Yeah. I'm exactly in the same shoes. I know that I I'm 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 aware that it probably could because it always has. But right now I just it just doesn't seem, you know, I I'm I have a, a an amazing marriage that I don't deserve. The fact that my wife stuck around through all of that carnage I just told you about is just a testament to the kind I mean I, I don't know how she saw what the man that I sit here today underneath all that but somehow she says she did. Yeah. Um but and it's we have a very happy open marriage. She she knows everything about me. You know, she she knows I'm an open book. Um, we have so much fun together. She's my best friend. Uh, it just I have so many good things. So many good things. Yeah, you were saying that. You caught me with one of those things, and I get the sentiment of it. But the like the don't deserve it thing always triggers me. Uh, we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, with all these blessings too, I find myself still peering around the next corner looking for what is next though you know so i not like I, that i like uh mark houston says it and, and my sponsor kind of started to attribute it to me there's a couple things i've stole from other people that are beginning to be attributed to me uh but i smell more i not really mm-hmm. do i don't i don't know i know there's going to be more i know there's more things around the corner uh i would be it does there doesn't have to be but that that continual optimism helps me helps my spirit keeps me on that higher frequency uh that there is something around the corner next corner there 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 always has there always has been uh you know what's crazy for me is that when i i think the same thing but it used to be when i would think i'd smell more it'd be you know more things more money more whatever and I, I smell more too, but it's a completely different kind of more today. It's more like a more opportunity, and and actually, I th- I find more ways to give of myself mm-hmm. is usually where the where the uh, blessing ends up being is I find some new way to participate in my own recovery. It has nothing to do with material goods. Uh, has nothing to do with stuff. Right. Uh, it's some new way like this podcast it was just yeah. you know i mean i had this thing come around you know and yeah. it just it just uh it just appeared uh through some conversations with people and you guys this brotherhood and and boom now we got a new way to participate in our recoveries and to give of ourselves uh you know there's that other deal you know, we can christopher's books coming out should that, be out should be for sale any day yeah uh and that's going to be another way because we're all like ground level soldiers on that and in a new way to give this thing beyond just our normal uh, alcoholic addict community, we shine our lights everywhere, right? I mean, you know that people mm-hmm. see you, and that's one of the other cool things about recovery is once you start doing this, even people who didn't know that you had the problem straight see a change in you. I had an opportunity mm-hmm. yesterday where somebody walked up to me and uh, gal at work and said, uh, "You're different." 
I've known you for about five years, and I started here about five years ago, and you are different. What happened? And you get that opportunity to happen to be that the guy sitting across the table from me, because I just am open with that today, said, uh, started talking about his brother being dying of alcoholism, and he's afraid he's going to die any day. And they keep on getting hospital calls. And, uh, you know, and I get a chance to share some hope with him. And, you know, where that goes, I don't know. But you keep on having those opportunities, you know. Uh, but with the book, uh, with Christopher's book, we actually have uh, what I've said from reading it is that it's finally put together. You know, the beginning of the big book starts talking about how we relate to our, our Alcoholics Anonymous book tells starts talking about how we can relate to uh, the, the, the symptoms of alcoholism and how we uh, have the spiritual sickness that manifests itself as overuse of chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the beginning of Christopher's book is talking about how the same manifestation of this spiritual sickness happens without the chemicals. Yeah, absolutely. And I we agree. see that, you know, so that's like, that's that missing component that we, to me, that's that missing component that we we from the time I've come into AA in 2011, which is eight years ago, uh, I've heard people say, I wish that the people outside could get the same thing. You know, everybody should, could you, could use the 12 steps. We should, yeah. I wish my wife had a program. I wish, you know, <laughs> just don't these, tell her that. <laughs> yeah. These other, uh, you know, you hear that floating around, mm-hmm. you know, and finally that missing component to me has been, how can we get, cause we've had to have the pain of the ism. We've had to have that be on us to be able to demonstrate to somebody. And now I have a set of tools that I can show somebody who hasn't necessarily fell into the depths of the alcoholism, the chemical dependency side of it, the chemical use, mm-hmm. uh, how their spirit has been sickened potentially and how this might help heal them. Yeah, uh, I still wonder about the despre- depre- uh, the desperation, the missing component of the desperation. Yeah, you really gotta uh, you really gotta want it. To, yeah, but they're they're out there though because yeah. we see them, you know. And uh, and man, I I, I I have this thing where I want to apologize for what I say at times, but uh, <clears throat> I know a lot of people that try Al Anon, our loved ones who try that, and they see that because they're looking for the same thing uh, that we have found, and they want it. And they're not finding it there and they're missing some place to find it. And the, between the, you know, I think this is going to be a place to find it. Mm-hmm. Another, another component that I found is that, uh, when somebody has some issue that I know that, you know, my heart tells me that the 12 steps would help them. I have to point them elsewhere. I have to say, go there or go over there, you know, and now I'm going to have the ability to say, come with me. Right. Uh, cause man, that's a big difference, man. When you're going to stand here and tell me that you got some help to offer me and you're going to point that direction, yeah. you know, that's not going to be, that's not, I'm not going that way. Right. I'm just not. I, I already but swallowed if you, my pride and came to you. Yeah. If you can say, come to me, uh, there's, I think, I think that's going to open up a whole lot of doors for a lot of people to start getting some, uh, help with, uh, with, with, you know, what we say, a design for living that works. Yeah, I said I mean, that, and I've had a, a few friends <clears throat> recently talk to me about that very thing of wanting, wanting to look at their lives in a different way, wanting to look at the world a different way, recognizing patterns, but in their life, but not really, you know, having the right tools, and uh, you know, like. You quote, uh, quote uh, is it Eric or Brent uh, Weinstein that said? I think I've heard them both actually say it. I think it was uh, 
I think it's Brett was the one that I've heard say about the sense making apparatuses. Yeah, yeah, that our sense making apparatuses like religion have just stopped working as effectively in our modern age. And I, I know a lot of people that that church and uh, that kind of thing is just not their deal, but they still need an avenue to address their spiritual health. Yep. And if I didn't have, you know, we we. When I say I'm grateful to be an alcoholic, I'm not just, that's not just some crazy wordplay where I'm trying to like convince a new guy to keep coming back. That's really what I mean because the way I have to live my life now, take the alcoholism away. If I didn't have that way of life and I didn't need it to stay alive, I wouldn't be as happy. I just, I know that because I have a way to address all my issues in the day they happen, go to bed with a clean slate to be connected to my brothers, to be connected to the world and, and not look at it as um, I'm a victim of it or that it's something that I need to get one over on, but just to be one of many. And without the 12 steps, I wouldn't know where to find that because for me, and I'm not putting down anybody that church is their deal, but for me, it's just not going to work for me. Yeah. And it's not working for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot, you know, this, I live this recovery thing. So when I'm out marching around in my walks through the day, whether if it's at my masseuse yesterday, which is another mm-hmm. blessing, you know I mean? I just, I giggle at that, you know, uh, that, that, that I'm doing that for myself today. I'm actually taking care of Dan. Uh, so I'm talking to her and she starts opening up a little bit of like what, you know, the coolest thing that happened yesterday was Christopher getting that, uh, proof copy of that book. Yeah. And that was on my mind, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, and so she was asking and, and I told her about it and, and she expressed the same, the same sentiment that she's just not finding. She's a spiritual gal. You can look around her, her room where she does this work in and see the spirituality shining through in it, the way that she has it decorated. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not, she's, she's lacking the community part of it which i think is vitally important and part of the reason yeah. why the churches do work you know when they yep. work is because of the community aspect yep uh, when you're on a solo spiritual journey man that's a tough road yeah uh, and you're trying to find somebody that you know we we have that same thing where we that that not being able to be part of mm-hmm. that not be able to have that connection with other humans uh so if you can get on the same you know and that's our whole 12-step thing is so cool that's like a it's a it's 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 somewhat of a missing link uh globally is that we are we're allowed to come up with our own conception of a higher power and we are not rejected for the one we choose yeah or the one we make up or the one we come up with the one we develop uh and those two things like that's world changing stuff because that half of the battles in the history of the world have been over those two points yeah (laughs) of yeah, it's amazing, like, the concepts that work so well in it that could work for everybody else. Yeah, you know, you're right. Like, you have a problem. You've tried to fix it. You can't. So you obviously need to form a concept of a higher power <clears throat> to help you. And then once you do that, you got to be taught how to be vulnerable because you can't fix a problem until you can admit what the problem is. Yep. So that's that vulnerability coming in. Exactly. You know, and and then then you've got to have, you got to take action, and that to me that's the big thing that was missing from my upbringing in the church was that there wasn't really a lot of action. There was no programs of action. It was a lot of, a lot of don't do this, 
but there wasn't a lot of, but do this instead. Yeah, like uh, Jordan Peterson in that one thing says, uh, uh, not in a, we don't want to do this stuff in a thou shall not manner. Yeah, you tell me what not to do. Right. Yeah, tell me what to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I need to be told what to do. Yeah. <clears throat> and we have these concrete tools in order to to do these things, right? We have concrete action-taking mechanisms that allow us, if you just do it, Another thing I stole from somebody else is not a program of some get it and some don't. It's a program of some do and some don't. Yeah. We have this stuff that in uh, our lights shine, right? You, people see it, so it's attractive. Uh, and if they want that, you know, we just say, do this. and uh, Your thoughts will follow later. Right. That, that's the wonderful thing about yeah. it is that. Good point. At, at, you know, I, was, I spent so many years knowing I had a problem and avoiding this program because of my thoughts. When I got into a position where I was desperate enough to just do it, my thoughts came along. And all of a sudden, just a few weeks into it, the the reservations I had got in line. Because I started seeing the proof of feeling better, not craving alcohol and drugs anymore, not having... I mean, I, I don't think I can adequately put it into words. I've tried with my wife, but I still don't think I can explain it to her. The internal battle... And how painful it is to wake up and tell yourself for an hour that you're not going to go to the liquor store, that you're not going to call the pill guy, and to do it anyway. Yep. I just, I don't, I don't know that people that have never dealt with that can really know how horrible that, that battle is. Yeah. It sucks. Yep. Um, the, yeah. the stock going to stop tomorrow's the all the self promising that uh, that I could never uh, yeah I could never hold up to I could but once you do the action and that stuff goes away and you see it work there I mean then you see it work in others it, yeah and it it fixed you know one thing I picked up from my sponsor is I'm just like you I I'm I don't think I'm that smart of a guy I just think I know how to memorize what smart people say and. Uh, Somebody told me, you know, we're going to fix the bullet hole first. We'll get to the paper cut later. Yep. Well, you know, I watched this program work on my bullet hole. That it fixed that. And so now I've got all the faith in the world that when I apply it to the paper cuts in my life, it's going to wash right over those two. Yep. Yeah, I really do think that uh, I'm sure there's some things. I'm sure there's some mental uh, chemical issues with people that that the 12 steps is not going to be solely sufficient for i think it can be uh i think it can be employed in addition to if you need you mm. know if you may need whatever kind of medical help from the medical community you might need to deal with some wiring issues or whatever mm. some chemical imbalances or whatever uh but i really do have a certain feeling that this is cool this this design for living will work if you will do it oh, period yeah. for anybody and it will make you know because I was talking to somebody the other day, and I, you know, I, again, I beat this drum. I was like, you know, uh, would you like to be a little better? Would you like to feel a little better, just a little? Would you like to be a little more happy? Would you like to be a little more content? Well, yeah, well, well who wouldn't? Well, we have a way to be, you know. Yeah. It's going to give you probably more than that. That uh, Dan Harris wrote a meditation book called 10% Better. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, because if you've heard him talk, he says, you know, I think it's probably a lot more than that. If you yeah. employ meditation in your life, you're going to get a lot more than 10%, but I can sell you 10%. You won't right. buy 50. Right. You know, if I told you, do you want to be 50% better? You'd be going, yeah, no, nah, I'm not buying that. Uh, but the, Yeah, and uh, I'm glad you brought up meditation again, because that's just such a, 
a big important part of the program to me because before then I, I had the ability to stay mad about a thing for a long time or, or internalize something. But when you, when you really get into the practice of like a mindful meditation where you can step back instantly and kind of look at it, you, you kind of lose the ability to stay mad for very long or to, it's not numbing it. It's just recognizing it for what it is. Okay. That, that situation sucked. Now, can I act on it? Well then do that. Can I not act on it? Well then I need to accept it. Yeah. Those are my two choices. Yeah. Or, well, my third choice is to continue to try to feel it over and over again, build a resentment, and then go do something stupid over it. Yeah. Yeah, we've got tools today to deal with the little bumps in a road that always happen. Yeah, they're going to come. Uh, the stuff is share it with somebody else. You know, I always say another thing. You know, I need to release this negative energy in my life t- to the universe through safe people. So I have people today, you know, there's not everybody because if I dump some of this stuff on the wrong people, man, they look at me like, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe I need to be locked up. Uh, but we if I use it do. on the right people, if I dump it on safe people, they know how to handle it. They know what it is. They know it's my disease talking the same kind of, mat, you know, that that noise. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they don't get all upset and worried about me necessarily, right? They can take my temperature and know ah, he's just, you know, venting, just, yeah. just discharging that energy. Uh, this whole thing about you know these these tools of meditation of uh, of slowing the mind. We did an exercise and I and, uh, sometimes I, I want to hold it under my head, but we did some exercise over the weekend at the last yoga teacher training where we wrote down a list of things. We asked each other in pairs, well, "Who are you?" And you just kept on repeating that over and over again. We made a big giant list of who we were. You know, father, son, woodworker, engineer, uh, spiritual guy, yogi. You know, and mm-hmm. all this stuff, and then they went in and they had you, they asked you a series of questions where you eventually crossed every one of them out on your list, mm. and uh, and then we also got quite. We did a thing where we got uh, we did a uh, it's really weird, man. We stood and we gazed into one another's eyes for long, uncomfortable times from like a, eighteen inches away, like foot to eighteen inches away. Wow! And just stare into into another man or another woman, another human. It didn't matter. Sex goes away. Mm-hmm. Another person's eyes uh, for a long period of time. Then we switch partners, and you do it again with another one. And uh, and then we meditated. After that, we got quiet and stayed quiet uh, for twelve hours. We were supposed to turn everything off. And uh, and then we come in the next morning and meditated. Not until after our morning meditation did we break that silence. Uh, no, you know, we had to actually, you know, there were some things where you were told loud to, uh, you know, let your loved ones know they weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't in on the deal, you know, so you kind of got to tell them why you're not going to talk to them, right. to, you know, you go home or if you have young kids, they're not going to understand that either, you know, and they're not, we're not wanting to like freaking traumatize people mm-hmm. either, right? Uh, a friend of mine said something about one time about, um, uh, You got to listen through the noise to hear the signal, mm-hmm. and you know life has got a lot of noise in it. You know, and all these things of that I think I am, all these things, uh, that's somewhat noise can be. You know, yes, oh, yeah. that's good stuff that I, you know, that I'm fact that I'm doing this yoga and that I'm a sober guy and that mm-hmm. I'm a father. You know, that's not not to discount any of that to say it's noise, but there's a lot more to us than that, right? Yeah, and and I'm also as long as I continue to let the noise chatter. And that's where meditation, that's where I'm kind of going with that, is that that's another tool to quiet the noise so that I can, like, hear the signal. Yeah. That thing where I can, that's the way I can actually be open to letting these new opportunities in. 
Because if I fill myself with all that noise, there's no more room. There's no room for it. Yeah, you it's know, kind it's of a, the cup it's like, that's over full. The, yeah, it's kind of like a sorting mechanism for me. Meditation is like I, I can like take a objective look and sort because I don't have any control really over my thoughts um, to the extent of what I put in like entertainment wise or that has something to do with it. But other than that, I mean, my thoughts don't really define me. But if I go, if I'm doing meditation the right way, I get to like kind of look at this whole pile of things that's in my brain and sort the stuff out and be like, okay, that one not working, that one not working. Oh, I need to focus on this one. It, it, it's, it, it allows me to sort through everything and figure out, you know, what, what actions need to be taken. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. That's, 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 that's hearing the signal. Yeah. Hearing through the, the signal, noise. Yeah. Uh, I like Scott Lee says, uh, I'm not responsible for my thoughts, but I am responsible for how long I think them. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, when you were saying about that, because uh, somebody else said like thoughts could be like another sense in a way. Like if something, if all of a sudden I'm standing outside and I smell something bad, uh, I don't like get upset about that. Yeah, you don't have control over that. <laughs> uh, but so you when, don't when have a thought to comes stand through, there. yeah, and I don't have to stand there, I can move away if it doesn't pass, yeah. which, you know, a lot of that same thing. But when a thought comes in, you know, I will want to criticize myself for having that thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and start like, great, beat myself up. Why are you thinking like that? And then I'll just nurture it, you know, but and then maybe I'll found, think about it all day. Yeah. Uh, but bring I've, it in I've tomorrow. Found ways to to at least um, regulate the thoughts that I don't want to have yep. by what, what I choose to l expose my brain to. Yeah. You know, if it's, it's pretty easy if you don't want to, um, you know, if you don't want to look at other women as just merely objects, well, don't put in images into your brain that treat women as objects. Right. Yep. You know, does that mean you're never going to have a sexual thought again about another woman? No, absolutely, absolutely not. not. Nope. But you're going to see the frequency of them go yep. way down. And it goes to that old Indian thing about the wolf you feed. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, what are you feeding in you? Yeah. And and what I put in me, um, that's another whole concept behind this thing. You know, I put all this positivity into me from these various angles. Now, it takes a lot of practice, right, and time and, yeah. and being around and put, applying myself, actually giving of myself, participating in my recovery. Uh, then I have this positivity positivity coming out of me, mm -hmm. you know, and it is, you know, if I pull negativity into me, what do I have to give out yeah. negativity. That's yeah. all I have, you know, so, uh, but there's simple principles like it, but I didn't have it. You know, I didn't get any of these tools. I, I, may, I don't know if I, somebody else, I don't know if I missed that day in class yeah. <laughs> or what, uh, if I was sick that week, uh, what happened? But I didn't get these tools that I have today at, you know, almost 50 years old and, you know, in, in my late forties, uh, had to hit the bottom that I hit in order to be introduced to these tools that like are, that are, were revolutionized my whole way of thinking and operating on this, uh, as I do my day to day walk completely changed me. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't get him either. And I, I, I don't think, I don't think we missed that day in class. I think in our culture, specifically in our culture, uh, you know, here in America, I think that some of this stuff is pretty foreign to a lot of people. I mean, meditation and yoga and stuff like that has gained a lot of ground in the past, you know. Short amount of time, really. Yeah. But I don't think it's just been, I want to look at it, maybe it's just been my exposure to it. Mm -hmm. But I really think there is something, there is a movement afoot. Yeah. I think. And I think it's people searching for um, Seekers. other spiritual solutions that don't 
that aren't traditional for this country. But I think that's, you know, especially you and I, we, I mean, we're, we grew up in the Bible Belt where most of the people back when I was raised looked at meditation as some sort of demonic thing, you know, I mean, or yoga even. Like, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think we necessarily miss the tools. I think it's just... We're yeah, that's more of a find. joke about the 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 missing the day in class. But, yeah, oh, I know. Uh, but I didn't get them. Yeah, you know, and it's not a fault of my parents. No, uh, I have. I, you know, ultimately, I have no way to lay this stuff at the foot of my parents. Honestly, no. now there's some uh, there's some genetic stuff that yeah. I came to find out that you know, and, and it took me a while to process my mom's. Uh, genetic disposition in most of the, uh, some of her side of the family, really. And uh, that's, again, that's not blame. I wanted to see that right off my head is going, oh, dude, don't say that. You're blaming them, you know, but uh, not. Yeah. It's just the fact of the matter that yeah. this stuff come down through. But I can't. My point is, is that I had a great upbringing, and my parents were really fantastic people, are really fantastic people. Hell, my dad lives with me today. Uh, yeah, I love your dad. And, and uh, it's not their, you know, they, but they also at the same time, I didn't get these tools. Now, mm-hmm. hopefully what I'm actually trying to do today is actually pass these tools on to my kids. They've had experience with 12-step philosophy and Alateen. They really don't work the steps there and do that kind of work there, which is another one of those things. And that's another one of these things that circle back to this book is that we're not putting age limits on these things either. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to try to actually introduce these principles to younger people too. Uh, maybe if you're... 13 or maybe if you're 10 maybe you don't necessarily you know the a fifth fourth and fifth step might be something but but you can begin to start having some of these tools and learn them and i think you could still do uh those steps as a kid it's just not going to be like heavy like we had right well, i mean and maybe you don't ever feel your you know that that in chris's book he talks about the garbage can that we're carrying around yeah and you know all the stuff you talked about all those traumatic events and this stuff that i called just using the big book term of calamity mm-hmm. uh, that I throwed in my garbage can. I just kept on, I'm doing emotions of taking stuff off in front of me and putting it into my backpack in this garbage can and getting all stinky back there. Maybe I don't ever have to get a stinky garbage can. Mm-hmm. Maybe I start processing this stuff as 10 years old, 15 years old. I don't know where that is I, I th- I and start beginning to clean that can out early yeah. rather than get to the point because i think that's what our sense of desperation in a sense in a metaphorical sense is that my can completely filled up and started splashing over mm-hmm. and you know and i'm walking around and i'm knowing you can smell it you yeah. know i know i can smell it right i've got <laughs> and i'm figuring smell, you smell though. it and uh and any place i go i feel like i splash a little bit around and then they know that, that my stink has been there mm-hmm. uh that i got some um a little bit of feelings of uh of not deserving to share oxygen with you uh, mm-hmm. because of my stench. Uh, if I never do allow myself to, you know, if I, if I give a, if I got a set of tools, so that's what we've done with, you know, that's what the point of the religious upbringing was, is to start you when you were young so that you didn't ever get to a point that you were, you know, and it worked for a long time. It really well, did. Well, I think that for, was the point I was going to make is that kids, the, we have no qualms about kids, you know, being in religious upbringings at five years old four years old whatever um you know one of the one and of it's the, way above them yeah well, one, mean, one of the teachers i kind of listened to uh sam harris um he's his wife has success getting five and six year olds to meditate yeah. to do mindful meditation so i don't think that these these uh principles are that we, we just might have to translate it down a little yeah, bit yeah I, I try with my three and a half year old i mean he, like just the other day on the way to school he was telling me that something about you didn't want to be good. And I said, you don't have to want to be good. You just have to be good. You know, like the, the, the want isn't, doesn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to do the rat, the action. 
Yep. There's things that, especially in the beginning, I didn't want to do. But once I did them, like we said earlier, the 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 thinking always follows the action. You're never going to think your way into a better life. Right. You've got to act first. Yeah. And that time and time again, that has been my experience. I can sit here and think all day long, and it doesn't do me a damn bit of good until I put my feet on the ground and start walking the journey. Yeah, Don talks a lot about that. He said, one of the things he said the other night, I heard him just speak at uh, Token Club here in New Albany, and he does a little thing about penicillin, and you don't have to want it to work. Yeah. You just have to take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just, uh, that's the action to do. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to want it to work. Uh, if you'll just do it, it will work. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that first day of AA I didn't want any part of. Yeah. But I saw a, I saw a guy that claimed that he had the same demon in him that I did. And that he said, if I, that I did these things and I felt better, Yep. you know, it wasn't anything about, believing wasn't anything about faith necessarily it was just this is what i did and i'm pretty certain if you do it it'll be good for you too and it it, it had happened for me i want to make sure i read this correctly pull something up here because i don't want to misquote it so we'll just get it on the table since we're beating it around uh books coming out it's be on amazon in the next few days and this is uh this is a Saturday, February the 16th of 2019. So sometime over the next few days, probably 72 hours or so, a book's coming out called 12-Step Spiritual Recovery, How to Reclaim Your Original Self-Soul. Uh, the author on the book is, uh, we, call him, we call him Christopher Cohn, and it's on this book, so I'm not out in any uh, uh, anonymity issues. We try not to say last names on the show just to protect people's anonymity, but I mean, I think if you're going to author a book and put your name on there, you've... Uh, you have outed yourself, and, uh, yep. and this ball is in motion now, so uh, we've kind of been a little bit under uh, wraps with it in a sense. But James Christopher Cohn is the author's name, uh, once again, it's 12-Step Spiritual Recovery, and it's a way to bring this 12-Step uh, philosophy to everybody. And it's also an advancement of the pro of the concepts and, and, and the principles behind it from what, um, what they were 80-something years ago. Um, everything gets better, right? As we mm -hmm. advance it and it evolves, uh, and and I don't, you know, those words of better and good and all that I don't like to use, but I don't have any better words to use. <laughs> uh, the other thing, modernization, does, is it actually, you know, there's a big piece of twelve step stuff is that is tribal knowledge. It's one of us sharing it with the other, and I think that's also a dynamic of a cool thing about why this works, because not everything is in that original blue book that we work from. I'm mm -hmm. teaching a lot of things and concepts that I've got from my sponsor yeah. that are not in the pages in there, you know, and that's I remember great. doing the same thing with my sponsor of going, you know, where is that? And it's like, well, that's not in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, and so I was a little bit, you know, like, well, so now we're making shit up. You right. Know? <laughs> Changing the rules. <laughs> yeah. Already. You know, cause I'm real book oriented, you know, I mean, I am, I'm like, yeah. Hey, if it's not written down here, uh, what do you mean? You know, right. uh, anybody could be throwing this shit at the wall. You know, are you just are you just experimenting on me? You right. know? <laughs> I don't want to be your guinea pig here. Right. Uh, but it's actually what. Uh, and, and again, Christopher will tell you very quickly that this stuff is not his. 
uh, he's had a number of great teachers. Uh, I want to be real clear when I talk, and that's why I attribute the sayings that I hear to the people that I can remember. Mm-hmm. If I can remember where they came from, I try to attribute it to the right person, and it's probably not even – some of it probably theirs. It's more of this tribal knowledge, these these sayings that come down the pike. Whoever – who come up – like try to trace back strike when the fire – or strike when the iron is hot. Yeah. You no know, well, that's uh, – well, and- Christopher is my grand sponsor because he is my sponsor sponsor. Right. So I feel very fortunate to be in that lineage. Yeah. Um, because, like you said, some of that stuff's not in the big book, and the way that he taught his guys to sponsor people is is a unique thing. Yep. And, you know that that day that I met my sponsor Chris, it's going to get real confusing. But when I met my sponsor Chris at the Token Club. There was a part, you know, Christopher was essentially sponsoring me through Chris. Right. Because he is the one that taught him the path. And so I'm equally excited to see this book come out because it is, you know, from my understanding, a pretty much a manifestation of the path that I walked. It is, yeah. You know, uh, uh, there's a bunch of things, and I'm not going to question them. I I know just the way that you – one of the things is now – it really, it, what Christopher's saying and what I'm hearing is it making it a little bit easier to actually give it away uh, because there won't be so much of the regurgitation to me having to tell you so much of it. Now, I don't know what to be lost in that either, uh, but it's all in there. You know, it's a manual. It's like an unabridged version now that's actually documented. And there's a bunch of ways, you know, that's another thing. There's a bunch of right ways to do the 12 steps. Yeah. Uh, and if you do them, you're going to get some benefit. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways that I know that this, you know, I know, I know in my heart that this is one of the optimized ways. There's mm-hmm. other, I'm sure there's other ones. This is the only one I'm aware of. Right. Uh, that, that you get a lot of bang out of the buck with single trips through the steps and, and a lot, you know, I mean, you see people really changing in a really, you know, we say that all the time. We've got guys that's got a year and a half of sobriety or something. And if they walk into most places, it looks like they've been around for years. Yeah. I mean, when they and share even, and talk. One, one of the guys that I've gotten the closest to, in the past few months is only four or five months sober. And you'd think this guy would have been sober as long as me. Yeah. Um, it's crazy how quickly the lights can get turned on if you fully submit, you know, but again, we're talking about guys that were desperate. Yep. Yep. Desperate and, uh, willing. They also, you know, and they also had this, this group of guys to look at as us mm-hmm. that, that shine a light. That's very bright and obvious. That's that we convinced them that you do this and you get to have this yeah you you walk this path you get to have this and they see it in us and it makes it really uh and easy you know takes a lot of the reservation away from them of that you know how that's another common i love to jot these down these the lies i keep on coming up with them you know the ones mm. that says you know i can quit anytime i want to i'm not hurting anybody i'm not afraid of anything uh another one is uh is uh, it can't happen for me right you know can't happen for me yeah and uh, I, have a, I have a whole list of reasons why it can't happen for yeah, me but we take a lot of that off of the table for a guy when they see us and begin to know us mm-hmm. uh, because we've had this spiritual awakening thing through this process and it's clear that all of us shine a similar color light we're all vastly different but you know that same light is apparent from all of us if you look around the room you go wow you know, hey, you, everybody's touched. Everybody that comes to our meeting and it gets to experience that, regardless if they're in the program, if they're visitors, if they're oh, our yeah. loved ones, they come in and they walk away going something is different in there. 
and that that just shows the importance of the community aspect of our our program it you know we the 12 steps the community the the good sponsorship those things all are necessary components because it, you know we are a program of attraction and the community aspect of our program is what does the attracting yeah you get to come in and say wow either those guys are lying and they're really high on something or they are happy yeah and we are we are a bunch of happy assholes in that room Yep, and they hang around with us for a little bit, and they realize that they were not taking anything. Nope. Uh, that becomes really apparent quickly, too. We're getting to have all kinds of cool ways. Like I said, we're getting together outside the rooms. We're having other ways to participate in our recoveries and levels that uh, I could have only dreamed about. Um, it's just it, it, it's just going to be really cool these next few. I just keep on thinking the future just continues to be bright and to be able to like give this thing away to people who have that's not been accessible to opens up a whole new door to me you know i'm yeah. like a whole nother window of uh of participating and you know the more i can do time and time again the solution in that book and in that that is that to help somebody else give this away to somebody else help somebody turn your attention to helping somebody else so now i like have a whole nother pool and a whole nother avenue to go down to be able to cultivate that part of my recovery and that it's crazy to me um how much i and it's probably that my my compass has been aligned or I'm seeking to keep it aligned. But the people that I pay attention to, you know, just like you, I I consume podcasts, you know, on, on a record level. But a lot of the guys that I kind of look to as teachers talk so much about the turning your attention to other people. Guys that aren't, you know, I'm not talking yep. about sobriety right. podcasts. I'm yep. talking about guys that I look to for spirituality and meditation yep. stuff. Guys that are... I mean, some of these guys are like movie stars and they're like, the only thing that makes me feel good is going and helping somebody. Right. It's yep. just, you know, it's a concept that's getting a lot more airtime these days. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to be able to be on the ground floor of this thing too. I've been excited since I knew it was in existence yeah. and I have read some of the other material out there that's attempting to do the same thing and uh, not putting those books down at all, but to see the path that is very specific to what has given me so much joy get published. I mean, I feel like, you know, without trying to take anything from Christopher, I feel like there's a piece of me in there too, because yeah, that's my absolutely. journey. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's super exciting to be able to just hand that to somebody and be like, this is how I got so cheesy happy. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't have to listen to me ramble on anymore. You can just read it right yeah. there. And you could technically go through this book on your own. But the only place you really would have to have somebody is in a fifth step. Uh, you could do that. You could. You. I don't think you could do that with the big book personally. I think you would have a hell of a time actually completing the fit the 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 twelve steps on your own without a guide. Yeah, you got to read between that, the lines too much. There, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, you get some relief somehow. But man, the other thing is, is you would. I think you'd constantly doubt what if he's doing it right. You know what I mean? You'd I think maybe you that. could do it with the twelve and twelve. Yeah, you probably could. You could do it a lot better with that than you could. Uh, this book here, it actually is a manual for how to do this. Right. So you could, you know, and it even has a lot of talk in there about the, in the in the fifth step. If you're not in the program, how to maybe go find somebody to mm -hmm. do a fifth step with. Which one of the things is, is go to open AA meetings. And I was going to say go to a church on a Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, go to an open AA meeting. I mean, because wouldn't how much? And I've said this. I've thought about it when I read it in there, like. How much juice would it be if you're sitting in some meeting, man, and you see somebody and they're new, 
and maybe they wouldn't even, you know, they don't even know nothing. They don't know enough to raise their hands as they're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, because they don't want to do that because they're not, right? They're mm-hmm. not an alcoholic. They're not. And so they're sitting in this meeting, and you know they're new, the meetings I go to. And they, after the meeting, they come up and ask you if they could talk to you for a minute. And they go, hey, I am not an alcoholic or an addict, but I got this book, and it, I'm walking these steps. So I got this book, and, and it's got a thing in there about coming to these meetings and, I, and asking somebody, I need somebody to do a fifth step with. Would you be available to do that with me? You know, you'd be like, but fuck yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the total juice is somebody just come up and ask you to do that, you know, and be a, be a little off base because, you know, the way we do it, it's a build. That's kind of well, a crescendo thing, you know. Our, our, ours are usually so full of some pretty depraved stuff that we want to just want to walk in and talk to a stranger about them. Yeah. <laughs> so that, uh, and I imagine as we can get this thing around, you know, I mean, that's it. It's got that, it's got the way to do the 12 steps in it. It's unabridged. It's got, it doesn't leave any details out. I mean, I'm, it's, it's. Uh, it is so deep and so thorough on the details uh, that, that it's, I mean, he's, he spent his, you know, I don't know how many years, six to 10 years or something like that of his life energy uh, putting this together. And so it's, it's, the clock is ticking and it's going to be out really soon. Uh, we have been talking for two hours and five minutes so I think we probably ought to do some concluders and wrap it up. I think uh, I think we push our limits at two hours. To, yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, although with podcasting, you and I will listen to ones that are almost four oh, hours and stuff. Yeah, but, uh, I got no problem with yeah, it. But. but not everybody likes to listen to them that long. <laughs> yeah, I got to be sensitive and, to that. Uh, maybe I will actually go back and through and look at it because we'll, the main focus of us being here today, we kind of digressed at the end and we kind of, I think we knew we were going to do that in some level, uh, even though we didn't plan it. I'm okay uh, with that. That uh, well, The reason was here was to get your story. So I really do. I appreciate it. I have not heard your story. I've heard you speak. I've heard enough. You know, we talked enough, but you mm-hmm. get pick, you get pieces, but like the puzzle, the puzzle pieces were all aligned for me today. So yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. That's one of the cool uh that's something really cool about being on this other side of the microphone is to hear these people's stories like one on one and get to know, you know, again, I improve that connection between me and my higher power by one way of improving my connection with you. Yeah. Whoever the you is, it's on the other side of the yeah. table today. It's Nick. And so I get to do that. And uh, the thing juices me up to be able to do it. We've got a couple things I want to touch on before we conclude that uh, 12 step spiritual recovery. How to reclaim your original spirit, soul. That might be the other way around. Might be soul, spirit. But uh, James Christopher Cohn, it'll be on Amazon soon. Uh, our circles will know about it. And as soon as it is on, I'll put it on a link on to it on uh, spiritualunderground.org. Well, by the yeah. time this is uh, this podcast is published, it should be. That book will be, should be out. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, yeah, because I'm I'm about a week ahead now, which is a good thing. I kind of like having that a uh, little bit of a, a backlog because there will be a weekend sometime where I'm not able to record or something will happen, and, and if I have some in the can, I'll be able to continue. We'll, we will be able to be put out new content regularly. Uh, so that's all I have. Well, you got any concluders you want to close up with? Um. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm really happy to be able to do this today with you. You are uh, very special to me. You're one of my best friends. So to be able to share this with you is great. And anybody listening to this, uh, I never thought this would work for me. I never thought I'd be sitting here this happy. I thought I was uh, doomed to a life of misery. And uh, today I wake up almost every day and it's the happiest day of my life. And, and I'm not just saying that. So um, if you're sitting out there and you feel like that, 
talk to one of us because it can get better. It will get better with some action. Yeah. And in that regard, my I have an email address on spiritual uh, spiritual that you can contact me if you got any feedback for this. Hell, if you're looking for somebody to talk to, uh, that's what I do today. Uh, my life is folded up into recovery fully. Uh, if you do, you know, I mean, I never thought about that till you said reach out to us. But, you know, uh, I can hook you up with somebody to talk to mm-hmm. and, uh, and and possibly get on this road that we're on, this road to recovery if you need that. And uh, so uh, if you will reach out on that email address, I get those instantly. I'm a plugged in, dude. Uh there will not be a lag between you sending that email and me seeing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can hook you up. I never had thought about that. We may become a helpline. <laughs> uh, but I'm uh, perfectly open to that. Juice, Nick, thank you for sharing with me today, man. Thank you for the discussion. Thank you for being my friend. Uh, again, like this best friend thing, this these, these high, this connection is just unbelievable. Yes, sir. I treasure our friendship. And, uh, and I look up to you the same way, man. feels like brothers. Yeah. It's so cool to be doing this. Absolutely. Love you to death. Thanks Love for coming too. in, man. Juicy story. And uh, peace out. Stuck in a pack.